Turn with me in Mark to the fourth chapter. We'll pick up at verse 21. As last Sunday we preached through most of 1 through 20. Mark chapter 4, 21. We're going to go through 34 this morning and look at three parables that Jesus has given us. I want to start a little different this morning. I want to start our message with the very last two verses of this passage that we're looking at. So in verses 33 and 34, let's begin there and see what Mark says kind of as a narrative after hearing these three parables from Jesus. He says this, With many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. What a privilege to be a disciple of Christ's and to have everything explained, everything from these mysterious parables that Jesus continually taught. Mark tells us that Jesus taught with many such parables. Many such parables. A parable, as we said last week, it's, it's a comparison, it's an illustration, it's an analogy that enables Simple minds to comprehend big truths. That's why Jesus used parables. Yet we understand from the scriptures that many people did not understand these parables. This was Jesus' primary method for teaching. There's some 60 parables in the four gospels. There's not any in John. Most of them are in Matthew and Luke. And these parables are all about one subject over and over again, the kingdom of God. And the parables that Jesus chose, much like the parable of the soils last week and the parable of the seeds this week, these parables are very applicable to everyday life. They're very simple to comprehend. They don't require a special knowledge or a special vocabulary to understand. No, they're not complicated. They're simple. And Jesus' desire is to communicate simply so that belief can happen. What complicates Jesus' parables are the hard hearts of the hearers. And I'm going to say to you this morning that as simple as Jesus' parables were, they were really and truly like what I call a velvet-covered brick. Think about that analogy for a moment. I'm going to preach a parable to you about a parable. But Jesus preached these heavy, profound truths that had massive impact on hearts. But he preached them in a velvet wrapping that was so easy to handle and so easy and gentle to hold. It wasn't hard to hold them, but it was heavy to hold them. You know what I mean? So I like to say that Jesus' parables are like a velvet-covered brick. (laughs) The parables, we are told, were not understood by everyone who heard them. And I need to take you back over to... Earlier in chapter 4, starting in verse 10, these are some verses that I did not get to last Sunday because time didn't permit and it didn't fit with exactly where we were going. But we cannot skip these very important verses, these seemingly controversial verses. Let's read those together real quick. And when he was alone, verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Hmm. 
That verse 12 is very controversial. (laughs) There's been much that's been said about that verse 12 over the centuries, over the millennia. But we need to simply read verse 12, this phrase, they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, comma, lest they should turn and be forgiven. We need to understand that phrase in the context of the whole Bible. And if we look at that verse in isolation, it's very problematic. But if we look at that verse in context of Genesis through Revelation, we're going to see that this is a truth that is proclaimed throughout the whole Bible. Jesus here is quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And really the simple truth is something that you've heard from this pulpit before. And it's a phrase that goes like this. God is sovereign. You finish the rest. Man is responsible. Okay? We've got to hold that truth in tension every time we open the Bible because the sovereignty of God is on every page in the Bible and the responsibility of man is on every page in the Bible as well. There is dual truth going on here. Jesus' parables, hear me very clearly here, Jesus' parables do not program people's hearts. You hear me? Jesus' parables do not program people's hearts. Jesus' parables confirm the state of people's hearts. That's a different thing, isn't it? So Jesus in his parables, when someone understands it, it's not because Jesus programmed them, or when they don't understand it, it's not because Jesus programmed them. It's confirming that they are a member, a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what these parables do. And so in this verse, we see that insiders who follow Jesus will be given understanding to the secret of the kingdom of heaven. But outsiders who are not with Jesus will be confirmed in their disbelief. That's what's happening in these parables. And that's what it means, lest they should turn and be forgiven. It is revealing that they are in disbelief and therefore they won't be forgiven because they won't believe in the truth that Jesus is proclaiming. And we're going to see this very specifically. I want you to hold that thought. We're going to see this very specifically in this next, this first parable in our text for this morning, the parable of the lamp. Now, before we get there, I've said to you already that Jesus's parables are primarily, and I mean 99% of the time, they are about the kingdom of God. You'll even see him intro his parables with the kingdom of God is like. So I've got two questions that we need to answer before we proceed. Number one, what is the kingdom of God? You might have an answer. You might have thought about that before. The kingdom of God is simply put this way. It is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ to the glory of God the Father. That is the kingdom of God. It will be ruled and reigned by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. And it will be done so to the glory of God the Father. So there's some Trinitarian language there. Two persons of the Godhead are referenced in that. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus Christ, and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at his name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the kingdom of God. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And they will do this at the name of Jesus Christ. And the text says that God has highly bestowed upon him a name. It's already happened. It's not something to come. It's already happened. And here's my second question. When is the kingdom of God? Well, we know when the kingdom of God is from the very first chapter of Mark, starting in verse 15, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, John the Baptist has been arrested, and Jesus Christ says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, right now the time is fulfilled. Right now the kingdom of God is here. It is here in me. Repent and believe in me. So the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven used interchangeably, is something that's already here. It's already present. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And I want you to hold that thought as well. Let's build out now and explain that in these three parables that Jesus gives us. The first one is found in verse 21, and it is the parable of the lamp. And Jesus says in verse 21 and 22 and part of three, 23, He said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So as we look at this parable of the lamp, let's get some foundational questions out of the way. Number one, why do you light a lamp? Basic here. Why do you light a lamp? So that you can see. So the lamp, by being lit, illuminates a room or a space, right? So you want illumination so that you can see clearly. Secondly, you light a lamp so that you can eliminate darkness because darkness is your enemy. Darkness is clouding your vision. Darkness is not allowing you to envision what is before you. And thirdly, you light a lamp to reveal what is hidden in the darkness. That's what it's all about. That's why we flip a switch on the wall when we walk into a room. Well, why did Jesus use parables? Jesus, like when we go into a room and turn the light on, Jesus uses parables to illuminate our hearts. That's the space that he's after when he wants to illuminate. It is not the mind merely. It starts with the mind, but he wants to illuminate our hearts. He wants to eliminate our sin. Our hearts are spiritually dark. And he shines his light, the word of God, into our hearts to speak away the darkness and bring, to, bring forth light. And then he does it to reveal what is hidden in our hearts. And if you read Jesus' parables, you will come to understand this velvet-covered brick concept. Because the parable is easy to the mind, nice to touch and handle, but it's heavy to the heart because it speaks to who we really, really are before we encounter such a parable. In our Bibles, in the Old Testament of our Bibles, the lamp is a metaphor for three things. Maybe more, but I think three is probably it. First of all, a lamp in the Old Testament is a metaphor for God. 
Listen to 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. So there in the parable of the lamp, God is the lamp. Secondly, in the Old Testament, the lamp is analogous to the Davidic Messiah. 2 Kings eight nineteen. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. So the Messiah in the Old Testament is referred to as a lamp that will be given forever. And then third, you know this one well, the, the lamp is an analogy of the word of God. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. So God the Father, God the Son, and the Davidic Messiah, and the Word of God are all analogies that are called lamps, or subjects that are called lamps. So in Jesus' parable of the lamp, the lamp is not brought into a room to be hidden. It's not brought to be put under a basket or under a bed. It's brought in to be put on a stand and to accomplish that for which it was lit to do. That is true of Jesus Christ, and that is true of his parables. They intend to light up the darkness of our hearts. But Jesus says something here. He goes on to say this funny phrase. He goes on to say that something is hidden to be made manifest and made secret to come to light. So there is a hiddenness, a secretness about Christ in the Word. And we're going to see this in, in these three parables this morning. The kingdom of God was not readily apparent to the people that Jesus spoke to, especially his disciples. They didn't totally understand that the kingdom of God was here and now with them. Look at this. Jesus, the Messiah, was hidden to a degree and he was secret in a certain way. How so? Jesus Christ was simple. He was humble. He was a rabbi. He wore sandals. He rode donkeys. He didn't ride white horses and have golden royal robes, right? He was simple. He was hidden away in a manger when he was born. So there was some degree of the kingdom of God that was not readily apparent to the people that Jesus Christ encountered in the world that he walked on. He was a teacher of simple parables. He didn't speak with this big, lofty academic pedigree. Just simple parables about seeds and soils and coins and fish and fields. <laughs> he was hidden. And then he was for sure hidden because this Messiah was crucified. That, that doesn't look like the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was crucified on a cross. He was even more so hidden, literally, in that he was put into a tomb for three days. And if it, that wasn't enough, he was so hidden in that tomb that a big rock was rolled over the mouth of that tomb. No one could see him. No one could perceive him. And he did not look like he was ruling and reigning in the kingdom of God. He was hidden. And he says here, things are hidden to be made manifest. Things are secret for a while so that they can be brought to light. And let me tell you something. Jesus Christ was made manifest on that third day. 
He burst forth from that tomb in his resurrection and he was seen and he was witnessed to by hundreds and hundreds of people as recorded. He walked on earth after dying and being buried in the earth. He was hidden and then he was manifested. And his hiddenness was in order that he could be fully manifested. Because until you understand and embrace a resurrected Jesus Christ, you do not understand Jesus Christ to the full. Likewise, let's fast forward 2,000 years to 2015, August the 30th. Let's be real honest. We live in a day and age where the kingdom of God is not readily apparent. You with me? You look around our culture, you look in the world that we live in, and it doesn't feel like the kingdom of God is at hand and the time is fulfilled. Jesus has ascended to heaven. We don't see him like the disciples saw him with their eyes. However, we do experience his presence through the presence and the agency of the Holy Spirit. But it's different. And there's eyes of faith. We don't see with eyes of sight, per se. We see through eyes of faith. And the world around us, to be honest, seems like the kingdom of hell, if you ask me. What with the harvesting of organs from pre-aborted infants. With the assault on biblical marriage. With the assault on religious liberty. We talked about that last Sunday. With the assault on the sovereignty of God, people are shaking their fist at God saying, He is not sovereign, I am sovereign. It does not seem like the kingdom of God is at hand very often, especially in politics. But the darkness of this present age that we live in will be exposed. It will be exposed gradually through parables that we proclaim from the Bible, but ultimately the gospel will expose the darkness of our world at the second coming that has been promised of our Jesus Christ. And it is a day that is coming and you could mark it down as happening for sure. We just don't know when. So Jesus will come again and his rule and reign, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will be readily evident for the all of eternity. That day is coming. And everything that we do right now is in preparation of that certain day. We live in a unique time. And here's how we, here's how we describe the days that we live in. It's a phrase called already, but not yet. That is the Christian life in 2015. That is the Christian life since the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father. The kingdom of heaven is already here. Yes, the gospel is present and it is ruling and reigning in hearts and lives around the world, but it is not yet fully consummated. It's kind of like being engaged. When you're engaged, and especially in biblical times, when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, she was as good as married to him. But there was a waiting for the actual formal ceremony when the wedding established the marriage for all time. We are a bride that is betrothed to a Christ. We're as good as married to him, but we're waiting for the wedding feast. And we're waiting for the marriage that will happen where we will live with him forever and ever and ever. That's Christianity in a nutshell. Right now in 2015. 
This is a pattern I could go through example after example. I'll give you one in the Old Testament. This is a pattern that God has used over and over. David was anointed by God to be the king of Israel, yet it took a long time for David to get on the throne, right? Saul occupied the throne. David had chances to strike Saul and remove him from the throne, but he said, Who can raise a hand against God's anointed? In God's time, I will be on that throne and it will be by God's doing. All the while, David said, I'm the anointed king of Israel. So there was an already to David's kingship, but a not yet until it came. And God has worked in that pattern over and over and over. It's not a new concept if you read the Bible. So we live in this time called already but not yet and we're getting ready for the not yet and the not yet could be here tomorrow now look at what jesus says in verse 24 jesus commands our attention to this truth he says do not listen with lazy sleepy ears get to the edge of your seat and i need you to listen to what i'm saying look what he says verse 24 and he said to them pay attention to what you hear With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Wow. What does that mean? That's complicated. Let's make this simple. Let's unpack this with spiritual eyes using the Bible to comprehend what Jesus is saying. Jesus tells us to pay attention to what we hear. And he says this phrase, the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That sounds a little bit like Sermon on the Mount when he says, judge not. That's not what's going on in this measuring text. The measure you use when considering these parables means everything. The need to measure well is urgent. And to measure well means we must genuinely hear with our ears. And yes, Stephanie, hear with our hearts. It, got, it has got to get to our heart. We've got to hear with our ears and hear with our hearts. And it is then that we have measured the words of Christ well. We're to measure what he says and by measuring it, we take it in. If we give good measure to what Jesus says, he says more will be measured out to us. So if we measure well, we get more. And then we measure well again and we get more again. And it keeps growing and growing and growing. Conversely, if we measure poorly, which means we really don't listen, it might go in here and out here, but not down to here. If we measure poorly, that is apathetic hearing where we hear with our minds only, and it will not take root. It will be like hard soil from last Sunday's sermon. Not fertile soil. If we give poor measure to what Jesus says, even what we have, he says, will be taken away from us. And what that means is, what we have heard will evaporate in disbelief because it never penetrated down into the soil of our heart. It will evaporate in disbelief and we will never partake of the kingdom of God. And so the concept, though it might be before us, because the word never penetrated our heart, will be taken from us. 
So let me make an application to this. I think this will set this at heart. Um, The kingdom of heaven is like a 401k plan. (laughs) A retirement plan. You, You have a principal balance that you put into an account. And that balance each month is going to accrue interest, earn interest. And when your balance earns this interest amount, those two figures are added together so that you have a new balance. And now next month, that new balance accrues interest. Now, it was a bigger principle that interest was calculated against, and so the interest payment is bigger, and then it's added to that principal amount, and then the next month, a bigger amount is earning interest again. It's called compound interest. Well, Jesus here says the economy of the kingdom of God is like your 401k plan in that it compoundly grows over time. And the more that you measure in, the more that you deposit, the more that you embrace and stick into that account, the more it will earn interest upon interest and on interest. And actually what's happening is even your growth grows. That's how the Christian faith is. When we open the Word, we are making more deposits. We are accruing more interest. And then it's growing exponentially. And where it ends, it's a place called eternity. That's the end. It will last us forever. And so Jesus' point is that faith compounds like a 401k plan. Let me give you two Proverbs that substantiate this. Proverbs 1, chapter 1, verse 5. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. So you hear this? Let the wise, he's already wise, let him hear and increase in learning. So he's going to become more wise because he was wise enough to listen to the first place. He measured it well. Proverbs 9, 9. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. These are men that are measuring the words of Christ well, and when he measures well, more is added to him. That's what Jesus is saying in this passage. And so this is a brief parable. This parable of the lamp and this call to measure well is a brief statement about the nature of truth. It encourages us with the promised benefits of listening to faith to the words of Christ. Listening with faith to the words of Christ. And it warns us of the consequences of refusing to listen to Christ. Because if we don't listen, any semblance of the kingdom of God will be taken away from us in the end times. Now with that, now with that, we flip over into two quick, rapid parables about the kingdom of God. And that's where we'll finish here this morning. Look with me in verse 26. We've got two parables here that are parables of what I'm going to call surprise. These are parables that are intended to surprise us. You could never imagine the outcomes of these meager beginnings of these parables. You're going to be shocked with the outcome. Of what Jesus says. The first one is the parable of the seed. Verse 26. And he said, and here's his phrase. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. 
The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Very simple parable. Very common language about a seed and some ground and a sower. And there are three phrases, or phases, I'm sorry, there are three phases to this parable. It's a process parable. The first phase is the scattering of the seed. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. This man represents Jesus' disciples, you and me. I think it's right to inject ourselves even into this parable. The man is not God because this man sleeps and rises day and night. God never sleeps nor slumbers. This man doesn't know how the seeds grow up. God knows exactly how the seeds grow up. So this man in this parable is the disciples of Christ, and that would be you and me if we are followers of him. And we scatter seed, and then we sleep, and we let the seed do its work. We can see that the seeds spread through the preaching and the teaching and the proclamation of the word. I am literally scattering seed right now. Stephanie Pack scattered seed from the waters just a moment ago. Right? You're going to scatter seed downtown and work this next week. You're going to scatter seed at the grocery store and at the restaurants. We're scattering seed. And then we see in the second phase of this process, the seed sprouts and grows. Verse 27, he sleeps and rises day and night and the seed spouts and grows. He knows not how. He doesn't know how it happens. I don't know how it happens. I don't know. I've talked with Stephanie Pack for a long time in the last year, correct? I don't know how the seeds grew, but the gospel was sprinkled in her heart by her soon-to-be husband, now husband, and by me and by my wife and by Kay Gartside. Seeds were scattered, and then we slept, and they germinated, and they grew, and a blade shot out, and then an ear and some grain, and then it was harvested in baptism by the Holy Spirit, which we depicted this morning in these waters. So once we've planted the seed, the Word of God, the, the analogy is we can't do anything to make it grow. That is the work of God. That's not our work. And we can, we can see that it was hidden. We don't know what was happening under the ground. We don't know what's happening in the heart with the seeds of the gospel that we sprinkle across the land that we live in. But... Along the way, we meet resistance, we meet disbelief, we meet a refusal to listen, we meet people that say, this is too hard, how can we understand? And they flee. But we must trust throughout our days the power that exists in this little simple seed. This is a powerful seed. The gospel, as it's proclaimed, is a seemingly small and insignificant thing. But it is the most powerful force that's ever been unleashed on the earth. And we need to have that kind of reverence for the power of the word of God. Listen to 2 Peter 3. Here's some verses out of this passage that speak to people who scoff at us as we sow the seeds of the gospel. And there seems to be no apparent growth and germination and production from this planting of seeds. 
Peter writes that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as if a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Stephanie, it took a year. What's the holdup? The Lord was patient with you, wasn't He? He graciously sowed the seeds of the gospel into your heart. And then he waited for the right moment when belief would happen on June 1st. Confirmation that germination had happened and production is here. And I'm ready for harvest. So we don't scoff. We, we don't get discouraged when we sow seeds and we see no effect. Those seeds are buried, they're hidden in the soil, and something is happening, something that we have no control over. But the God that we worship does. Now the arrival of the harvest, verse 29. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest time has come. The growth of this one little seed of the gospel produces a stalk that has an ear with grain all over it. It's full of grain. It's made manifest. It was hidden at one point, but now it's made manifest. And we can have confidence in the self-contained power of the Word of God. So the point is, we must trust the power of the message we proclaim. We must trust the power of the Word of God, and we must proclaim it and spread it faithfully. Because it will grow. By the grower, God himself. Uh, uh, Let me make an application here. You could apply this. We've applied it to Stephanie. Sorry to make you such an example this morning. We've applied it to Stephanie's life. We could apply it to everybody's life in here. We can apply this truth to the life of our church. We can. We are planted. And we are waiting to see growth. Now you be careful about how you define growth. The growth that we want is the growth that we see in these waters from time to time these last few months. That's the growth that we're looking for. We're looking for the seeds of the gospel to be planted into the hearts of one another. The hearts of those who visit with us. And You're welcome here to hear these seeds planted in your heart. And then we pray and we sleep. And we don't know how, but somehow over time, these seeds sprout into growth. And our church grows and prepares for the day of harvest. It might grow numerically in more people coming, or it might grow just in depth in the deepness of our souls and our love for Jesus Christ. I pray it grows both ways. But we need to be certain, church, we are poised for growth because we have planted this in our hearts. We do it in Sunday school classes. We do it right here in Sunday morning in singing and baptizing and preaching. We do it in Wednesday night discipleship classes. We do it in Camp 220s and Cornerstone mission trips. 
We're sowing the seeds, the word of God, and growth is guaranteed to happen because this seed is powerful. The next parable is found in 30, verse 30, the parable of the mustard seed. Here's what Jesus says. He gives us his phrase again. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So the kingdom of God is like a little bitty mustard seed. Something that if you're not careful, you can fumble it and lose it down there in the carpet and never find it again. There are two aspects to this parable. The previous parable was a process, a three-stage process. This one is not a process parable. This is a contrast parable. And we're going to see a contrast between the smallness of the mustard seed and the largeness of the bush that comes from it. If you've ever held a mustard seed, you are amazed at its smallness. And I want you to get one sometime in the next week and hold it and say, this is like the kingdom of God. I think that would be a very healthy exercise for us to go home and do. It's tiny. In fact, you could say it's hidden. When you plant that in the soil of all the seeds, it is the most hidden seed in the dirt. I don't care how deep you put it. You would never think that much of anything would come from the mustard seed. At best, it might be a dandelion that's about that high. But a bush that provides shade that birds can make nests in from this, that is what the kingdom of God is like. That is what the gospel is like. This simple word proclaimed from this simple preacher this morning can grow a magnificent, eternal person to the glory of Jesus Christ. The largeness of the mustard bush is amazing. It's manifested from the hiddenness of this tiny seed in the soil. And this again demonstrates to us the power of the little bitty gospel message that little bitty you and me could ever proclaim. It's powerful. And some people, because of the smallness of the gospel have abandoned even proclaiming it. And they plant bigger things like common sense and human logic and what Confucius says and what Benjamin Franklin quipped one day in his journal. And they've abandoned the gospel. And they proclaim morality instead of the gospel. And they try to plant something that looks bigger in seed form because if it's bigger in seed form, it's got to be bigger in growth form. And the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is not like that. You do not need to hear from me worldly wisdom. You need to hear from me mustard seeds. You must. So we must trust the power of the message of the word of God. And Jesus teaches us that the size of the mustard seed has nothing to do with the power and the ultimate outcome of its production. So in application here this morning... Our seemingly puny little efforts to evangelize this world are not puny. 
They may feel puny. They may feel inadequate. Josh read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 17 to 25. The gospel, the, the cross is folly and foolishness. It seems puny and small, but that's exactly what God uses to shame the power and the wisdom of the world that we live in. My meager sermons each Sunday morning, your meager evangelism in the workplace during the week, our meager mission trips around the world to interact with people that don't even speak our language. How could they possibly understand the gospel that we're proclaiming when there's this language barrier? Oh, when the gospel is proclaimed, it is a mighty and powerful seed that will grow into a mighty and powerful kingdom-exalting bush. So the point of this passage this morning in conclusion is this. This is three parables about the hiddenness of the kingdom of God, but don't be fooled by the hiddenness. It is absolutely here. The gospel, the word of God, though it be very simple and very small, it is extremely and ultimately powerful. Don't ever, ever underestimate the power of proclaiming the word of Christ in this world. Be faithful to sow it. Sow it into your own heart first. Measure it well so that it will produce magnitudes beyond what it was when it began in you. And then sow it faithfully into the world, into the hearts of others. And you won't know where it grows or when it grows or how it grows, but grow it will to the glory of God and the eternity of His glory. So I challenge you this morning to see these parables from Jesus as as a call to embrace the powerfulness of the word of Christ in his parables. Yes, but more than that, in his life that seemed so simple, but yet was so magnificent. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you this morning that we sometimes look at your word as a simple, small thing. Father, even as a preacher of this word, there is an inclination in me that I have to fight against to say that it is not adequate enough and that I must add something to it to make it all the more powerful. And Father, I pray that you would protect me from that approach to this seed, that you would never let me fall subject to that way of thinking. I pray that for my own soul, but for the souls of the people that would hear and sit under my preaching. Father, I pray that everybody in this room would see the power of the gospel and would not be ashamed to proclaim it and would understand that by unleashing one simple proclamation of the gospel is unleashing the most powerful force that has ever been in the world and that will ever be in the world. Finally, Father, I pray this morning that those who have heard this simple message would measure it well, would measure the truth of Jesus Christ and receive him. And then that you would measure more out to them. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.